Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Social justice is one of those phrases that is seems to be pretty elastic. Uh, you find definition, redefinitions, qualifications of it uh, over and over again. Friedrich Hayek, the famed social philosopher and economist, considered it incoherent. In fact, it was a mirage. Um, you got the uh, at least one passage in the um, compendium of the social doctrine of the church uses social justum, justice as a synonym for the common good. Uh, you've got uh, people like uh, Michael Novak, uh, who defined uh, social justice uh, as the capacity to organize with others to accomplish ends that benefit the whole community. Uh, it, it's, it's something that uh, is popular. Uh, it's a, one of those phrases you want to try to get to understand, especially as a Catholic, since uh, it's an area of concern. Uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Robert Waples, uh, has been with us before dealing on matters of economics. He's co-editor and managing editor of the Independent Review and a professor of economics at Wake Forest University. He is uh, the co-editor of this book, Is Social Justice Just? And he's also, as we've talked before, editor of Pope Francis and the Caring Society. Uh, he also hosts the Modern Economic Issues Lecture Series at the Great Courses. Robert, good to have you back here. Thank you. Thank you for having me on again. Well, this is a helpful book. I, I, I'm really glad to see it. And I guess let's talk a little bit about... Is there any consensus uh, within the church or within uh, among economists and social philosophers of what is social justice? I mean, do we have clear definitions? I think that there's just such a wide range of definitions that it's really hard for people to even have a conversation about it yeah. these days. Yeah. You know, on one side, you've got people who see the, the term social justice as like a sincere attempt to right wrongs, you know, to pull down the oppressors, to, to help the underdog. Right. And then often when you look what they then say we need to do, you're like, how is that actually helping the underdog? And <laughs> why do you see oppressors everywhere? So I think a lot of people are, are very confused by it. The term has quite a bit of, of baggage. And some of the authors in our book you know, say that it, it's really kind of used these days as a, a a cudgel, right? Yeah. People pretending to the high ground, and what they really want to do is a little rent-seeking. They want to line their own pockets. Uh, Thomas Sowell, the economist, uh, said envy was once considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under its new name, social justice. <laughs> <laughs> There's a range of opinions. But what we're trying to do in the book, I think, is maybe restart the conversation yeah. and, and try to get it on a good track. Because, I mean, there is there's some useful content to the term, to the ideas of social justice. I think you need to go back to, like, what is justice? Right. And right. then build from there. And so... The authors in the book generally go back to the old definition from, you know, Aquinas and, and people like that, that justice is the constant and perpetual will to render to each what is due to him. Mm -hmm. 
So what happens when we put the word social yes. in front? Move it from I, the I individual. We need to yeah. think about, yeah, we got to think about the rules of the game, you yeah. know? Yeah. Not who won and who lost. Actually, in our society, it's like who won and who won more. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> not that. But, you know, were the rules right? Were the rules moral? Were the rules fair? That That kind of thing. Rather than... Seeing at the end of the day, well, this guy who's on my team didn't do well enough, so this must be rigged. No, uh, not like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because in some cases, you listen to people talk, it, it, social justice becomes uh, what you invoke when you come across something you disapprove. And mm-hmm. that the, the, the social justice becomes the remedy, and then the remedy uh, almost always has some uh, instrument of, uh, of uh, enforcement. So it's to, yeah, it's, coercion, you know, yeah. to getting the government in. Once you use the word justice, if there's something truly unjust, something's got to be done about it. Right. And often that implies that, you know, the government's got to come come in. And we think that you can rehabilitate the term. If you go back to those legitimate principles we were talking about, they they recognize each person as unique and unrepeatable, worthy of dignity endowed with the ability to direct their own lives without harming other people, and noble enough to care deeply about the well-being of others. It's a bottom-up thing the way we see it, and I think it's grounded in, you can see from what, what I just mentioned there, noble enough to care about, you know. Uh, it's, it's grounded in, at least the way I see it, a very religious, a very Christian yeah. uh, point of view. Yeah, I, when you talk about each person as unique and unrepeatable, and worthy of dignity, uh, endowed with the ability and right to direct his or her own life without mm-hmm. without harming others, you really are looking at a, a, a very Christian understanding of the human person. Um, so in that case, then, social justice becomes the pursuit of what, of the social circumstance, a social environment by which people then can cooperate with others to mm-hmm. uh, find human flourishing as they understand it. Yeah, I, th- I think that word cooperation is the key. And so uh, we kind of give a sober warning that even honest attempts to involve the state and coerced redistribution can rapidly decay into simple rent-seeking, lining your own pockets. But also that there's a lot of unjust things out there that we would we would need to stamp out if we were to have a more just and more socially just world. Yeah. You know, government policies that involve cronyism and, right. and bailouts and, and special privileges. No, those, those things got to go. Yeah. So it's definitely not a status quo kind of thing. Uh, but let's start with good first principles and then let the thing emerge from the bottom up and – one of you know the first principles that the authors are mainly economists is that people interacting freely with each other in a market it usually works out pretty well if you you've got a you know good set of laws that's being impartially enforced by the courts and in fact just look around the world today we're seeing more and more countries putting in place economic systems like that and we're seeing greater and greater economic prosperity yes i i published a little paper last year in which i looked at like where do the poorest americans fit in the overall income distribution. Okay, so the poorest 5% of Americans, they're at the 5th percentile in the United States, mm-hmm. but they're at the 69th percentile in the world. Wow. And if you looked at all the human beings believed to have ever lived 
economic historian estimates are going way, way, way back. The poorest 5% of Americans today would be at the 95th percentile among all human beings who've ever lived. Wow. So we have built a system that can just erase absolute poverty and, yeah. and give us the kind of economic flourishing that I think you know, we're, we're capable of doing and we were designed to, to achieve. I mean, it seems to me that that's a, a fact of economic history that doesn't get much attention when I hear people talking like, about social justice. Do you ever, like, fall to your knees and just, like, I am so grateful <laughs> for being here right. now and not living way back yeah. then? Yeah, I do, by the way. Yeah. And, oh, good. You yeah. know, we should. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's, we should learn from that, though, it seems to me. That, that should tell us something about what makes for human flourishing. And uh, many of those who are champions of social justice, as they define it, seem to think that um, free markets uh, are, not, uh, are not a help in uh, lifting people out of poverty. Mm-hmm. I think they got a pretty good track record. The other authors in the book uh, were all on the same page there. And, of course, free markets are not perfect. There are things that, you know, they leave out. Uh, the Pope Francis and the Caring Society book that you mentioned earlier, yeah. I kind of set up a, like a dialogue between a market-oriented economist and Pope Francis and what he was saying. And, you know, there's obviously some things where you just leave the market, the market is us, leave us to our own devices, and things don't work out so well, right. like, you know, pollution and overfishing the seas. We talked about That's that a right. couple of years ago on your show, I remember. Yep. So there's some cases where, you know, we could definitely step in and, you know, we need to act collect- collectively. We need to get the government involved to help solve these problems. But, you know, those, I think, are more the ex- the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Pope Francis, uh, one of your uh, contributors mentions that Pope Francis speaks of the preferential option for the poor rather mm-hmm. than social justice. Uh, mm-hmm. Why is that? <clears throat> Um, I I don't presume to speak for all the authors in the book, but, uh, you know, the the basic idea is that we are all what part of one human family, and mm-hmm. so we do have an obligation to take care of those, especially who cannot take care of themselves so well. And I think that's the essence of, you know, the preferential option for the poor, that, you know, it, it's our duty in many ways. Yeah. Uh, many, one of the... <laughs> best ways to help the poor, though, of course, is to unleash the forces of the market economy, which have given us that great prosperity that I was just talking about. So too often that's overlooked, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I know in one passage here, Pope Francis is quoted as uh, ta- making a very uh, uh, common point, which is that uh, mm-hmm. the best thing you can do for somebody in poverty is find him a job, get, yeah. allow him to work. Um, yeah. Allow them to accumulate property. Um, you know, in the last chapter of the book I, I wrote, it's about anti-racism and social justice, you know. And I'm kind of in, in dialogue in that chapter with uh, Ibram Kendi, the yeah. author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. Right, right. And I, I give like a list of policies that one might implement to get to the end that he has in mind, which I think is also the end that I and most people would have in mind. You know, we, I, I open my introduction and I open this chapter by saying that we all hunger to live in a just world right. and work constantly in ways great and small to promote justice. So how would you do that? 
he sees capitalism and racism as conjoined twins. And that, I just do not see how one can get that reading the history. Yeah. You know, the opposite of capitalism is socialism, and socialism is the one that leads to abysmal out, you know, outcomes where power is just concentrated in a few hands and prosperity is destroyed. So if we do all want to be on a level playing field, on an equal footing, as Kendi says, you know, you don't want to be on an equal footing down at the bottom of a pit in socialism. It would be better to be on a relatively equal footing near the top of a mountain, uh, you know, with capitalism. So I've got some suggestions there. And one of them is what you just talked about, right, and that the Pope talked about. Jobs, right? Yeah. Exclusionary licensing that make it so difficult for people to get jobs. That's one of those things that I would... Robert Holter, got to take a break. Yep. We'll come right back. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Robert Waples. He is uh, co-editor uh, of the book, Is Social Justice Just? And it's got uh, outstanding contributions. Uh, very worthwhile. We're going to have it available for you, of course, in the online bookstore. So it'll be there for you to follow up with. Um, you were, We closed last segment. You were talking about mm -hmm. uh, the chapter in which you uh, enter into a dialogue with uh, the the father of uh, how to be an anti-racist, uh, Ibrahim Kendi. And with somebody like Kendi, I mean, his, his absolute is the, the fact of racism. So he, he sees nothing except through that lens. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering, how do you talk with somebody like that? <clears throat> yeah. Difficult. I doubt if I'll ever have the chance to talk to him one-on-one -on -one or anything, yeah. but... Uh, you know, one of the points I make in that chapter is, you know, we want to do some reforms that will help everyone be on an, an equal footing. Let's address the fact of, that black lives matter, and I think they do. Sure. And 63% of black lives end in abortion. Yeah. That's yeah. Some, yeah, that is something that you would definitely want to address if you want to have an anti-racist uh, yeah. you know, world. So yeah. we've got, I've, I've got a, a number of suggestions in that chapter, what you would do uh, kind of, I think almost everybody would agree if you could kind of step back and think about putting power into those, the hands of those people who are designed to run their own lives, you know, educational reform to give parents more say, Yeah. maybe vouchers. Uh, reforming our healthcare system to eliminate barriers so that it's easier, so we can increase the supply and it's not so expensive. Uh, getting rid of occupational licensing so you know it's it's hard for people to even get into a job that they're perfectly qualified for because mm -hmm. they haven't done whatever box needs to be checked off. Ending exclusionary zoning. You know, <clears throat> back in the day when there was a center of opportunity in the country, Detroit, Motor City. Yep. You know, Everybody would move there. Yeah. Nowadays, it's so expensive to move to whatever, the Bay Area, New York, wherever, because it's so difficult to build housing there. And so, boy, is that one thing that has really made it difficult for people to prosper. Yeah. Cheap energy is something I point out as well. You, know, you wouldn't think about that, but fracking, what a boom that has been in bringing down, especially natural gas prices, right. used for housing, you know, heating people's homes in the winter. And you know how many people die of cold in the winter still in the, this day in this country? Yeah. You know, and there's an estimate, you know, the source I quote 
like how many lives have been saved by the cheap energy from yeah. fracking. Yeah. So, you know, of course, ending cronyism and bailouts and a topic that when I talk on many shows, conservatives aren't always on the same page with these days, and that's free trade. Most economists think that free trade is a very good idea, and the studies show that it actually helps the people at the bottom part of the, of the income distribution far more. Uh, one famous study uh, in one of the top economics journals <clears throat> says that moving to free trade in, in, in the United States uh, has increased the effective purchasing power, income levels, of people at the 90th percentile, rich people, by about 4%. But if you're at the 10th percentile, it's increased your purchasing power by about 70%. Wow. Well, yeah, that's amazing. You know, those those are the trade that, that's, goods. That's uh, rich, rich people buy services. So, you know? so, so, what I mean, what's funny about this is yeah. that so-called economic nationalism, which mm. is uh, talking not about free trade, uh, is always it's always uh, said that this is protecting American workers. Uh, mm-hmm. But what it what you're saying is that uh, at the other end at the, of the worker mm-hmm. as consumer. Uh, it actually any gains that might be had by mm-hmm. pre- preserving uh, occupation uh, is lost when it comes to consumers. Yeah, yeah, I, and that's you know that's tied in with one of the other things I said, you know, about the occupational licensing. We need to free up our labor market so it's easier for people to move from one place to another, from one occupation to another. It's the combination of those two things. I think you know the increased in uh, increased imports that we had in the past and also it's just hard for people to move to new jobs that that left some people kind of high and dry mm-hmm. and we we certainly you know don't want to to have a lot of losers in this process yeah. and there are, are policies we have in place in the country to help people transition to new jobs but it's not really that kind of policy that will do it it's getting rid of other policies that make it difficult for people to get new jobs uh, many many social policies have people who defend them because, in fact, they've built uh, uh, their institutions around them. So you've got you got uh, cap- we talk about crony capitalism, but you've mm-hmm. also got people in the civil rights establishment in other areas of activism um, who really benefit tremendously by cooperation with governments and other large organizations that offer grant writing. And mm-hmm. they, they're they not necessarily, I mean, they, sounds terrible, but in some ways, they their income, their revenue, their livelihood depends on the problem that they're supposed to be solving, mm-hmm. that problem mm-hmm. not being solved. I mean, what happens mm-hmm. if all of a sudden uh, all the issues of racial justice are settled in America. What becomes of these, this network, vast network, of interlocking civil rights organizations? What do they do now? And so there's a large portion of professional and semi-professional people who are benefiting uh, mm-hmm. in organizations allegedly created mm-hmm. to solve social problems but in fact, if those social problems are eventually solved, those organizations disappear. So, mm-hmm. I, what do you what do you say to groups like that? I know that there's a, a lot of. It turns out there's a lot of jobs like that out in all parts of the economy, a- where you have an incentive to not make the problem go away. Right, right. <laughs> Economists have a general term for this. It's called the principal agent problem. The principal 
wants a job to be done and so selects an agent to do it. But the agent doesn't always have the best interest of the principal at heart. Right. And my, my, you know, what, what's in it for me here? Yeah. And how can I keep this kind of thing going? Yeah, we definitely have to, we've we got to be very vigilant about that. Yeah. You know, in almost every setting from the, the corporation to the, the classroom to the church to everywhere, we've got to make sure that people aren't just making problems so that they can be paid to, to pretend to solve them. Yeah. When when you look at the the uh, church documents dealing with the questions of social doctrine, uh, like the compendium uh, of the social doctrine of the church, mm-hmm. um, is there a coherent understanding of social justice in that body of material? I, I, I am not widely read enough to answer okay. that question Fair for enough. you. So yeah, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's why I asked. I want to know. <laughs> so if you can't answer <laughs> it, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, you know, I wish. I mean, this is the failing on my part. Let's admit it—that I should be spending much more of my time looking at things like that instead yeah. of reading the economic stuff that I'm reading. <laughs> well, that's an area of expertise for you. We need you. We need you there doing it. Um, do you see? Is is there a political expression in America right now that you think embodies what your contributors for your book here? That they would like to see. I mean, any political leaders, anybody championing yeah, the vision. I, I think the problem is that it's the depoliticization of things that we need, right? Yeah. We try to politicize everything. Right. You know, we've seen it happen with our schools recently. And, well, and once one side politicizes it, the other's got to get involved and, you know, who goes first. But, yeah, just getting the politics out of everything, I think, is the best way to – if that could be our default setting, you know, separation of blank and state. You know, we always think church and state, whatever. There should be separation of a lot of other things in state out yeah. there. Um, I, I think that they would just allow people to come together voluntarily to work out their problems and not enforce their will on other people because that's so much about what, you know, politics actually boils down to. It does. I mean, I, I don't think people take seriously enough the idea that when, when laws are passed, uh, those laws have behind them coercive instruments. I mean, you, you, when you pass a law, when some, you're saying that there are those who will not voluntarily adhere to those laws, uh, so you need to somehow punish people. So you, most of us would rather have a society in which uh, people were encouraged to do uh, what is right rather than have to wait to be punished uh, mm-hmm. to a, a achieve that and i don't know i mean it's a fairly libertarian approach to things but given how many people benefit from um the money that's Mm -hmm. distributed by one of the chapters in the book has this concept of justice creep yeah you know like mission creep you know you know we needed to address this problem and then every other problem and where does it end? And, and it doesn't seem to end. It just it seems to feed on itself is the problem. So, and, and, yeah. that, and that's one of the things that people object to with the idea of social justice, that it seems to require principles of enforcement, that these, mm-hmm. you know, and so you end up relying on the, 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 the heavy uh, stick. I get government. the sense sometimes that part of the problem is that people don't 
fewer and fewer people believe in eternity and in eternal rewards and eternal punishments. Yeah. And it used to be back in the old days, you know, it was like somebody was a jerk and they did get away with something that they shouldn't have. And you were like, yeah, but they're going to pay a price for that. Right. And right. nowadays, well, they're, n- they're never going to pay a price. We've got to go after them right now yeah. on the smallest of, of pretexts and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very true. <laughs> um, your, from your observation, are, do you see Catholics becoming more and more uh, uh, articulate on these questions of social justice? Well, some of the authors in the book are uh, obviously Catholic in their background, and then I think they have articulated a lot of their points quite well. I, you know, I can't really speak for you know too too broad of a set of people, uh, but I think we are making some progress, and and I certainly hope that this book pushes us toward doing that, and we can have more conversations just like this. And I know yeah. you've got thousands, millions of listeners. I don't know how many listeners you have, but they, they, we're having actually a three-way conversation right now. That's right. Because the, the person listening in their car or whatever is, is thinking like, what about this and what about that? And they're turning these ideas over in their mind, rightly so. And this is what we all need to do. And then kind of live out what, you know, what we come to as the, you know, yeah. what is a truly just situation. Amen. Robert, thanks. Great talking with you again. And um, we'll uh, get together in the future. Uh, do you have any other literary projects that you're involved in? Uh, well, I'm I'm writing a few chapters for a book on great minds of the market. And so I've been reading some of the greats oh. like Mansur Olson and Julian Simon yeah. and Gary Becker. I don't know if you know any of these names, I but do. they're getting my, my mind humming on these. I, I know their names. The I don't know what they thought, show. though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'll look forward to that. All right. Very good. Thanks, Robert. Thank you so much for having me on. Is social justice just? Uh, Dr. Robert Waples, uh, co-editor, along with Michael Munger and Christopher Coyne, will have it available on the online bookstore there. And again, this question of social justice, the question of the common good, is something I do think, uh, as disciples of Christ, we need to talk about more because the world is always thinking the only way that you can achieve some of these goods is through the coercive power of government. And I think that's one of the misleading facts of the word social justice. It implies that you have to have some cudgel that's going to force people to do things, right? Come down and whack them. But it's much more virtuous if people volunteer to do the good.